Welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast, day 14 of the 57th New York Film Festival and our daily podcast here at the festival. In a moment, we'll listen to the complete audio from the director's dialogue with Parasite director Bong Joon-ho. But first, I'm here with Matt Bolish, who's producer of the New York Film Festival and the programmer of our Convergence section. Welcome, Matt. Hey, Eugene. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Glad to have you here. Um, and thank you for finding uh, a few moments in your busy schedule. <laughs> well, no no worries at all. It's uh, it's always fun to, to jump on the podcast. Really excited to be here. So you're the producer of the New York Film Festival. We'll get to Convergence in a moment. Sure, sure. But you, you wear a few hats here. Uh, Matt is the director of operations for Film at Lincoln Center, producer of the New York Film Festival, and, as I mentioned, programmer of Convergence, producer of the festival. What does that mean uh, for folks listening in who are attending the festival or even folks who've been listening to this podcast and getting a, a taste of it from far away? Uh, what does it mean to produce a festival of this scale and magnitude and 17-day length? Sure. I mean, I, I guess what I would say to any of those folks, if they know, feel free to write in uh, and, and let me know. Uh, a lot of it is, um, you know, uh, working with our staff, working with our partners, both corporate partners and studio partners, to really just kind of bring all the pieces together. I mean, as you can expect, something to the size and scale of the New York Film Festival has a lot of cooks mm -hmm. in, in in the kitchen. And so you're what, the head chef. I suppose maybe that's one way to look at it. Um, but uh, yeah, you bring everyone together at a table mm -hmm. and make sure that we're all working together towards that same common goal. Because mm -hmm. it's really easy. Lord knows, um, I've worked on some fests, you know, that are a you know, fraction of the size and they're mm -hmm. great. It's really easy to fall into you're like, this is, this is the most important thing. My world is the most important thing. And then you forget how much all of it is dependent, how this piece is dependent on that piece is dependent on this piece. And so what I view my role as, as the producer of the fest is to um, make sure all of those kind of smaller pieces, those wheels within wheels are kind of grinding together the right way, that the machine keeps moving forward, that we're just solving problems, not creating them. So the festival takes place, uh, you know, we joke about it, but it, it takes place over 17 days mm. here at Lincoln Center on 65th Street, West 65th Street. And we're in four cinemas throughout the festival. Um, but one of those venues is not a cinema year-round. Yeah, one of those one of those cinemas is not like the others. <laughs> and it's, it's also the biggest one that yes. has almost 1,100 seats. And yeah. it's a world-class venue, but it's not a movie theater right. most of the year. Tell us about the, the work and and what goes into converting that or Alice Tully Hall into a movie theater. Sure, sure. So, uh, yeah, you're, you're talking about Alice Tully, um, which is a concert hall. Um, and it's actually designed to be a world-class concert hall. Mm -hmm. It has these beautiful wood walls that are you know, great at capturing sound and bouncing it all over the place, which is exactly wrong if you want it to be a movie theater. So one of the things that we have to do whenever we come in there is, you know, hang a lot of drapery. Um, we have a, a great relationship with uh, the team at Dolby actually here in New York, and they they come in and they calibrate the house for us, and they're here throughout the, the 17 days, actually the, the, even the days before then, mm -hmm. just to make sure that we're, we're creating the best kind of acoustic uh, space and and making making that really work, and then on top of that too, um, you know, it's easy to walk into Alice Tully's lobby for any any listeners who have been there before, and those who haven't, it's vast when you're standing there by yourself. But the second it starts filling with people, it's like, oh well, this is this is getting cramped. So one of the big pieces that we have to really work on, and every year we 
try a couple of different things is how we move effectively 2,000 people every two hours or so <laughs> through that space um, without causing, you know, anything but a small riot every once in a while. <laughs> we try to keep the riots very small and very contained. Well, there's some, there is something exciting, even just as a moviegoer before I, before I even worked here, uh, about... Um, watching a movie in that venue, it really becomes, for those 17 days, the most uh, the most beautiful and most exciting movie theater in the city. Well, you know, I have to say, it's it's. I love going to the movies. I love, I think what, what a lot of us, I would mm -hmm. hope, listening to this, love going to the movies. But whenever you do go to a movie theater these days, you're kind of in a, you know, a house that's maybe two or 300 seats. Mm -hmm. And if it's one of those reclining things, that they've created these, re these relationships <laughs> with the audience, which are really nice and cool, but you kind of disappear into your seat. You disappear into your space. I mean, you're there with your friends and that's yeah. it. You don't really, it's kind of like being at the airport. Yeah. <laughs> you really don't want to talk to the guy next to you. Where at a festival, you're yeah. kind of hoping that that conversation next to you bleeds over so you can have that conversation. And Tully's perfect for that. Mm -hmm. um, it is, it's incredible because it is so big. Um, you would expect there to be a lot of seats that are kind of questionable, but the way that it's designed, um, there's really not a, I mean, there are some seats that I would choose over others, but there's, in my opinion, not really a terrible seat in the whole house. Yeah. And there is something magical about being in that room for this festival that there's like a palpable excitement even on day 14 of the festival mm -hmm. um, where people are like, I really want to be here and I want to be a part of this and I want to see something. And you're having that group experience that, yeah, sure, you can have happen mm -hmm. uh, at a smaller house, mm -hmm. um, but it's really special when you're discovering something together in a room at that scale. Well, I know um, that you've worked at numerous other festivals um, in various roles. Uh, ticketing, <laughs> certainly uh, production, yeah. but um, also as a programmer. Sure. And this is a way to transition our conversation to talk a little bit more about the programmatic role you have at this festival. Sure. Tell us about Convergence. Sure. Um, Convergence is our interactive and immersive storytelling uh, sidebar of the New York Film Festival. We started it, uh, geez, now it's almost 10 years ago, which is wow. kind of hard to believe. Um, you started this program yeah. almost 10 years ago? Is yeah, it nine? yeah. Uh, I guess eight. it's not. This is the, this I think is... this is the eighth year. Wow. I okay. think we got, we got a couple more for 10, but I should probably start planning the 10th, right? Yeah, getting up there. But yeah, exactly. And, and actually, you know, you were a big part of that, Eugene, um, kind of getting it on its feet those first years. And it really started as a panel program. Yeah. Um, we did two panels a day for two days, <laughs> and we were like talking about buzzwords. They were basically buzzword panels. What is transmedia? What is immersive storytelling? And we, yeah. we had some great, I mean, very full houses, and it was clearly something people were excited about. Now, fast forward two years, mm -hmm. and we actually started programming content. It was less of a conference and more like, well, let's show a piece. Let's show. And that really started with like two or three pieces. And now we're up to, you know, usually it's a dozen to sometimes it's close to 20. Mm -hmm. This year it's, it's uh, I think it is 12. Um, and they range year to year from, you know, VR to AR to XR to to immersive storytelling. Oh yeah, I know. Virtual reality. Okay, what are reality. these? He saw yeah. the look in my eye. Yeah, he saw the, exactly. What are all these crazy well, buzzwords? Well, and see, again, we're back to the buzzwords, <laughs> but I think the thing that I've recently hit upon yeah. when talking to a, actually it was a customer on the street sort of thing. Like they were literally, it was one of those things that probably can only happen at the New York Film Festival <laughs> where this, this woman stopped me on the street and like had her program in hand, like explain this to me. She didn't know who I was, mm -hmm. didn't know that I produced the festival, didn't know that I programmed Convergence mm -hmm. and was like going through like projections Projections, our avant-garde show, and mm. was going through retro, and and then actually said, "What is this convergence? What is this technology stuff?" And.
And it, it occurred. And what did you say? Well, it occurred to me <laughs> that we really do get caught up. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not something that just I run into. I know that other colleagues at other festivals run into this too. It's easy for your immersive storytelling or VR section, if you want to call it that, or AR section or whatever it is, um, to really be kind of for lack of a better term, pigeonholed as the technology mm-hmm. thing. But in reality, what we're talking about is just different ways to tell stories, different ways to consume stories. And I look at our creators as more like, you know, cinema mad scientists. <laughs> they're, they're people who are looking at the way that we consume narrative um, and then they are kind of breaking the mold a little bit and, and playing with the technology maybe that's a little bit different than mm-hmm. we're used to seeing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's augmented reality, you know, a pair of glasses you slide on and suddenly you see things or hear things that weren't otherwise there. Or, or virtual reality where you're completely shutting yourself into this virtual world. Or it's immersive theater. We have a piece that um, is going to be in this year's festival. It's premiering with us. We're very excited about called The Raven, um, which uh, we are premiering for three shows, but then it'll run for a couple of weeks after the festival's over so people can really check it out. And that uses augmented reality, these brand new Bose glasses that have been Mm. created to create this really interesting um, sound effect and soundscape. But they're also, the customer, excuse me, the audience member Mm -hmm. is walking through a five-story brownstone on Fifth Avenue, um, and they're literally interacting with Edgar Allan Poe's you know, demons and ghosts and trying to find out, you know, kind of the, you know, Poe's meaning of life and why hasn't he moved on to the afterlife. Mm -hmm. And it's this fun sort of really, really creepy, expressive, interesting narrative. Mm -hmm. And it's made possible by technology, but the story would exist without it. The story is strong enough that it doesn't, you know, completely depend upon or, or it, it doesn't exist because of the technology, I should say. And and this, The Raven doesn't actually take place on campus. It's yeah. the only thing we're doing this yeah, year yeah. that doesn't happen uh, on 65th Street. Yep, it's in this, it's in the American Irish Historical Society, which is a, a historic uh, protected um, brownstone right across from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, and it is so perfect for this show, um, you know, bow art styling mm-hmm. and, you know, crown molding mm-hmm. and, you know, marble everything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's you know, from a producer's perspective, it's it's sort of a kind of a, it's a scary place to work because it's, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't have an elevator and it's, you know, the lighting is a hundred years old or mm-hmm. whatever. But from a curator and a fan's perspective, mm-hmm. I can't wait to watch people go through this. And I mean, in addition to that show, um, we have three virtual reality programs. Mm-hmm. We create what we call our virtual cinema, mm-hmm. um, which is in the amphitheater at the Eleanor Bunim Monroe Film Center. And each of those uh, programs features a mix of documentary and narrative um, storytelling um, told by some, as far as I'm concerned, some of the you know, really top artists in the in the field. Um, and we're really lucky to have a couple of those uh, creators here with us for Q&As um, throughout the weekend. And uh, the schedule for all that's all online. Um, if people want to check that out. So Convergence starts today, Thursday. It does. Uh, and it goes through the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, can people just kind of walk up and check it out? Or sure. is, is, 
how do they how do they how do folks access it? Yeah, sure. So um, things like the Raven, you need to you want to make sure you get that ticket ahead of time. Mm -hmm. I, I believe right now online it's all sold out. Um, we might be dropping some extra tickets. Um, in addition to that, I would encourage anyone who wants to check that out. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be running for weeks, so I'm sure the team from the Raven would love to have you come by in the middle of October mm -hmm. and check it out. It's a perfect kind of Halloween treat. In addition to that, um, we have an interactive film called Holy Night that we're putting up in the EBM. Um, it uses it runs off of iPads that are around the lobby. Mm -hmm. That's free and open to the public, so okay. anyone can come in and, and check that out. And then the virtual cinema programs uh, run just like a typical movie screening at NYFF. We've sold tickets. In fact, I've just been told by our box office person uh, that, you know, as of today, those are all on standby, but we will be taking standby folks in. Mm -hmm. So um, any of those listeners who are thinking to come and check it out, please, please swing by. And, and we think we'll be able to get some folks in on the standby lines. And for those shows, just to kind of reiterate what the experience is, you, you're going to walk into the amphitheater, you're going to put on a headset? Yeah, you'll be, um, w the way that's set up is, um, there's actually 20 headsets in the room. Okay. And we'll let 20 folks in. Everyone slides into the headset. We do our little intro. Um, our staff gets them in a headset. And then we actually turn on the system. And everyone will see the same thing at the same time. And most of the programs range from 20 minutes to 40 minutes in length. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, you'll see multiple VR experiences at that time. Uh, then we take it off and we have a Q&A or a conversation with the creators that we have present. Um, so it's very similar to a shorts program. Mm -hmm. Um, or a regular you know, feature film presentation at the festival. Um, but it's a really good way to kind of get a survey of multiple pieces. And we actually, that's one of the reasons why uh, my colleague uh, Rachel and I, she helps me program this. Mm -hmm. uh, we uh, decided this year to kind of mix up those pieces. So there was some narrative, some documentary, some experimental. So you really could get, if you could only get into one show or only had time for one show, uh, you didn't... Uh, miss anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're still, each show is very different from the other ones, um, but you're able to get a real quick survey of what's out there. We, we do know that there are quite a few people who are coming to all of them, which mm -hmm. we love, mm -hmm. um, but it is possible to see a little bit of everything. So that's the convergence section, which uh, will take place throughout this, this upcoming final weekend of the 57th New York Film Festival. Our guest has been uh, colleague Matt Bullish, producer of the New York Film Festival and also programmer of the Convergence section. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you, Eugene. And now let's take a listen to the complete director's dialogue featuring Parasite director Bong Joon-ho. With 59 primetime Emmys and 30 Academy Awards, HBO Documentary Films has been bringing audiences a full spectrum of stellar, non-fiction programming by acclaimed documentary filmmakers for decades. Dive into the year's most compelling documentaries and get ready for the powerful films to come. Stream the stories that matter, including The Case Against Adnan Saeed, The Inventor, Emmy Award-winning Leaving Neverland, just to name a few. And look out for the exciting new films coming soon, only on HBO. Thank you uh, for being here. Um, how many people here have seen Parasite? Okay, wait, I should have asked the other. How many people have not seen Parasite? <laughs> okay. Maybe these people ha has to prepare some headset when, when you're talking about no, the second half of the second. movie. <laughs>
Um, we won't get into too much detail. Um, these director's dialogues are an opportunity for us to 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 have some of our, film, our favorite filmmakers here and to to talk a little bit more in depth and and look at the entire scope of their career. Um, so I thought we would start at the at the beginning, not the very beginning, um, but about your. Um, how you got into filmmaking? Um, you know, just just looking back at early interviews with you um, and 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 reading your biography, it was very striking to me that you studied sociology. Um, if there's any filmmaker where it makes sense that sociology was their background, I think it's you. Uh, so, can you say a little bit about why that was your field at university? Yeah, my major was sociology, but I know nothing of it. <laughs> 그냥 대학 다닐 때 이제 그 시네마 클럽에서 대부분 영화 동아리에서 대부분의 시간을 보냈고 사회학은 어쩌다가 그 사회학과를 가게 되긴 했는데 그 다시 큰 관심이 없어가지고 예. I spent most of my time during university at the uh, school's cinema club, and somehow I ended up studying sociology, but I had no real interest in the field. <웃음> 네. Um, but I wasn't really inspired by the classes or really the professors. Instead, I spent a lot of time with the friends I met at school, and I learned about worlds that I never knew before from them. 그리고 졸업하고 이제 그 한국 영화 아카데미. After graduating um, from university, I went to the Korean Academy of Film Arts, which is a film school operated by the government, and that's where I went to create my short films. So you were at university in the Late 80s, early 90s? Or? Yeah, it was 1988. Yeah. So this is um, like a, a quite a tumultuous time in South Korea in terms of uh, student yeah. protests. And I'm wondering yeah. if you were, were you poli politically active? Actually, yeah. Almost of, at that time, it, South Korea is still under the military government. Yeah. Not that harsh dictatorship, that very strong, harsh dictatorship is over in 1987 but the military government still remains from uh, 1988 so a lot of the students, not only just me, we all participated in the protests, but it was pretty much part of our daily lives. We would go to class for three hours and then maybe protest for two hours. We would go to eat and then go to protest and then go back to studying. So it was very uh, daily. So just part of the routine. Yeah. That's very, almost every day in campus yeah, at the time. Um, and when you say you were, you know, discovered cinema and you were going to the cinema club, what kind of films were you watching at the time? 대학교 시네마 클럽에서는 막게 의식적으로 어, 세계 영화사에 나오는 그런 막그 잭시 앨리스 책 같은 데 나오는 막 그런 것들 막 찾아서 보고 막그 영화 히스토리를 다 섭렵하겠다는 그런 공부하는 느낌으로 막 봤죠. 아, uh, so when I was uh you know, participating in the cinema club, I very intentionally tried to study film and watch films uh, that are, you know, one of the greatest in uh, cinema's history. I looked at theoretical textbooks and I, I studied films with the intention to sort of master the history of the art. 
Unfortunately, at that time there was no Cinematheque in South Korea, so and also there there was no DVD and internet, so so all those great the classic films by the illegal VHS copy. Mm-hmm. So 내가 그걸 관리를 했어요 동아리에서 일본부터 뭐 500번까지 그래서 그 되게 집요한 게 그런 비디오 테이블 제가 관리하던 사람이었는데. And I was the one who managed those videotapes from number one to 500. Um, I was very obsessive over managing the collection. But at the time, I watched films to really study them. Um, going further back when I was little, the films that I watched when I was in elementary school, those are the ones that really just flow in my bloodstream. I already told, uh, told it in some interviews. Uh, in 1970s and 80s in South Korea, there is a TV channel called Uh, AFKN, the American Forces Korean Network, is uh, some kind of broadcast station for the U.S. armies in South Korea. So every Friday night, there is uh, many uh, 성인 어떤 아까 되게 강렬한 영화들을 금요일 밤마다 uh, 많이 해줬단 말이에요. 근데 이제 식구들이 다잘때 제가 혼자 그거를 많이 봤었. So every Friday night they would play sort of these really intense R-rated films, and while my family was sleeping, I would watch them by myself. At that time, I I I had no information about the films, but after I grow up, 대학 가고 나서 보니까 이제 그게 다 John Carpenter, 뭐 Brian De Palma, Sam Peckinpah, Alfred Hitchcock, 뭐 이런 영화들이었던 거죠. 나중에 가서 알았어요. 그거 어릴 때 몰랐다가. So later on, when I went to, when I went to college, that's when I realized that the films that I saw when I was little were ones by John Carpenter, Brian De Palma, and Sam Peckinpah. 네, 그런 영화들에 정말 깊게 빠져들었죠. 그리고 이제 어, 그 영어를 모르는 상태에서 보니까 내 멋대로 막 내러티브를 조합을 하는 거예요 머릿속에. 그래서 좀 그의 시나리오 쓰는 훈련도 됐던 것 같아요. 어. So I was really um, deeply obsessed with those films, and because I didn't know any English back then, I basically reconstructed the narrative in my head, and I think that was good training to be a screenwriter. Hmm. So these were all American films on this channel. Um, I'm wondering if Korean. When did your awareness of Korean cinema um, start, and, and is, is Korean cinema of an earlier generation important to you? 그 이제 제가 항상 저의 멘토로 생각하는 이제 김기영 감독님 이런 분들이 있는데 이제 하우스메이드. So I consider the Korean filmmaker Kim Ki-young always as my mentor. He's the director who did The Housemaid, which was a uh, um, uh, screened by the Scorsese Foundation. Um, and Japanese directors like Imamura Shohei, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, those filmmakers I learned about after college when I was trying to study films. So this. Um, you saw the trailer that we played before director Bong came on. We're doing a, a series of um, what came to be known as the new Korean cinema. I mean, I don't know if it's accurate to call it a movement, but there's certainly a generation of filmmakers around your age who started making films in um, Korea in from the mid-90s, late-90s onwards. Um, and that seemed to be like a really exciting time. Uh, for Korean cinema, when it sort of like had another you know moment of resurgence on the world stage, as somebody who is part of it, you know, I'm wondering if you had a sense of what contributed to that that moment. It wasn't as if we had this manifesto that we are part of this group, like the Dogma '95, um, and we never really considered this as a movement per se. 그렇지만 이제 저랑 
Um, but it is true that directors like Park Chan-wook, Kim Ji-hoon, Yoo Seung-won, and I, we did um, hang around together in the early 2000s, and we watched a lot of films together. I do think that we are kind of the first cinephile generation of Korea. 예를 들면 이제 우리 임권택 감독님 같은 경우. Uh, but the Korean director Im Gwon-tae, who was the first Korean director to screen at Cannes and sort of gain this international reputation, he's a film director from my parents' generation, and he's kind of like John Ford, where he first started out in the film industry as a prop master. He he didn't study film or watch films at um, these cinema techs. He worked on set and then eventually became a film director. And like John Ford, Coppola, and Scorsese, they they all belong to different generations. Um, I it was similar for Korea. 뭐 전하 김지훈 박찬욱 my generation of filmmakers like Kim Ji-hoon and Park Chan-wook we are very obsessed with collecting DVDs and we would show off our collections to one another we would borrow DVDs and never return them we would be like did you see this film I have and so it was kind of this childish atmosphere that we formed and we sort of competed in devouring cinema who is the biggest collection I don't know exactly, but maybe me. I have. We'll go with that. I don't know exactly, but more than five or six thousand Blu-ray and DVD. Wow. Except the iTunes things and all the the physical collections. Yeah. So you know, talking about this group of filmmakers, you know, you said you didn't have a manifesto, and I think it's interesting. There, there. You're all very different filmmakers, um, especially if you include also like people like Lee Chang Dong and Hong Sang Soo and a few others. But um, there seems to be—I wonder if you think there's something that connects this this group and this generation. Just to generalize a bit, I feel I feel like there's something about your generation that is interested in taking a closer look at at society, and but also taking a more satirical or more ironic, more critical look at um, the society in which you live. 예, 넓게 보면 충분히 그렇게 얘기할 수 있을 것 같습니다. 시대 시대와 호흡하는 부분들 분명히 있었고, 근데 이제 뭐 굳이 그 안에서 또 나눠 보자면 전하 박찬욱 감독. So generally, I think you can definitely say that we all flow with our times. But directors like me and Park Chan-wook, we have a lot of affection and obsession for genres. And directors like Hong Sang-soo and Lee Chang-dong, they're quite distant from genres. They're more auteurs who love to delve deep into what their messages and their stories um so i just want to move on to maybe looking at the the scope of your career um which now spans in terms of your future films it spans nearly two decades you've made seven films i think um i'm wondering if you just to start it's just a starting point i'm wondering are you the kind of filmmaker who tends to make a film in response to the previous one you know whether it's to do something different or to elaborate on a theme or you know to what degree is your previous work in your in your mind 그렇죠 뭐 계속해서 뭔가 다른 것 뭔가 that's true. I always strive to create something different. I want to create a film that has never existed in this world, and that also includes my works. I always, I'm always ambitious in trying to create something new. 근데 제가 이제 이 페러사이트가 기생충 같은 경우도 um, so with Parasite as well, I came up with this idea in 2013 when I was working on the post-production of Snowpiercer. Um, but before I begin writing the screenplay, I let the idea percolate and mature for around three, four years like wine or whiskey. Um, and it's not as if after Mother, uh, because of something about Mother, I did Snowpiercer, or because of something of Okja, I did Parasite. It wasn't like that. All my projects tend to overlap. 
So a question about um, Parasite then. We won't, don't worry, we won't um, get into too much detail. Uh, but, uh, you know, this, the film is described accurately, I think, as a film about class, about economic inequality, about um, this particular form of capitalism that, that we, we all live in now. And, um, and I think it's a, a kind of a logical pro progression for you to make a film that's so explicitly about class, since your films have always been about underdogs in some way. You know, your characters are always fighting against something larger, you know, whether it's like a, a larger force or a big monster. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that the, I think class is something that is hard to, to deal with in cinema. Um, and I'm struck by Parasite and a film from last year by Zhang Dong, Burning, also deals very explicitly with class. So I'm wondering if this is something that is a, a central topic of conversation in Korea today that has created these popular mm -hmm. films. Um, because I, I don't really see a lot of American films, even though mm -hmm. class is part of the conversation here, I don't see artworks about it. So I think it's very natural for artists to be very sensitive to the times that they, they live in. There was Burning by Lee Chang-dong, but there was also the American film Us by Jordan Peele, although that film is a, a much stronger genre film. There was also Shoplifters by Koreda Hirokazu. And it's not as if me, Jordan Peele, and Lee Chang-dong Hirokazu, we all gathered at the UN headquarters to have a meeting on how to strategize about creating films on class, but I think every artist just responded to their times in their own ways, and that's why we've had such uh, strong films in the past couple of years. 저도 뭐, 에, 설국열차 같은 게 이제 물론 그 계급 얘기 같은 뭐 부자 가난한 자 나오죠 기차에, 근데 이제 and Snowpiercer was also a story about class. It was about the rich and poor set in a train. But Snowpiercer was also adapted by a French graphic novel that was published in the 1980s. And that was already 30, 40 years ago. And it was already, um, you know, we were still under capitalism then. So I think class is a theme that just penetrates our times throughout. I think we're always ready to talk about this issue. Um, for Parasite, I also tutored at, uh, for a very rich family when I was in college. 그 2층에 사우나가 있더라고요. 예. That house had a private sauna on the second floor. 그집 아들내미가 저한테 되게 자랑스럽게 거기를 소개를 했어요. 그래서 되게 묘한 기분을 그때 느꼈던 어떤 생경하면서 묘한 기분이 아직도 생생하게 기억에 남아 있어요. 예. Um, and so the boy showed off the sauna to me, and I still re vividly remember the eerie feeling I had um, just being in that house. 그리고 자기가 부자, 자기 집이 부자란 거에 대한 어떤 자랑스러움이 있었는데 그 꼬마. And so I remember how proud that young boy seemed to be of his very rich house, and I remember how I felt like I was spying on the private lives of complete strangers, and that those personal memories were where my uh, idea for this film began. So rather than my, um, just you know intending to uh, give a political message on class, um, this, those personal memories are where this began. Another aspect of Parasite, um, which we didn't get to talk about at the screenings, um, and I was thinking about is, I don't, I don't know if you thought about it as a film about family, um, which is another theme that seems to run through your work. Um, you know, The Host is kind of a film about family. Mother is a film about family dynamics. Just... <laughs> 그 제외하고는 다 가족의 어떤 요소가 있었던 것 같습니다. 예. 
I think aside from memories of murder, my films have already always centered around the family. But most of my families, um, most of the families in my films are shattered in some strange format, or they're lacking something. They're missing a part. 특히나 이제 그런 가족들이 되게 극단적인 상황. And um, uh, my films always feature situ extreme situations for those families. You know, the host is about a dad who tries to save a daughter that's kidnapped by a monster. It's a very strange story. Um, so my stories always begin with families that are incomplete, and I drive them towards extreme situations. Um, and you know, families are the most basic unit of people that we can we encounter on a daily basis. So I always have this impulse to drive them into very unique situations. I wanted to ask you to talk a bit about the process um, of of writing and storyboarding, which I know is a very important part of your process, is to storyboard as well, um, and which makes sense uh, it, to hear you say that you discovered cinema actually in a way of not fully understanding the language of American cinema and watching films a certain way. Um, I think you're an incredibly visual director. But um, more than that, I, I think of you in, as a really spatial director. Like I feel like I, your films convey a really strong sense of space. You know, so I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, you can use any film as an example, but the two houses in Parasite, or you know, the train in Snowpiercer. Like how do do the spaces come first before the dialogue? 네. Before. 공간에 대한 얘기를 해주셔서 되게 감사한데 저저 공간에 대한 집착이 되게 강하죠. I get very excited and happy when I discover a great space. Um, I just go crazy over it. 그 스토리보드는 당연히 공간의 바탕을 둘 수밖에 없죠. 그래서 특히 제가 로케이션에 대한 집착이 되게 많아서. Um, and of course, my storyboarding process storyboarding process is based on space. Um, and I'm very obsessed over finding locations. My location scouting process is very meticulous. Um, for mother, I basically scanned the entire Korean peninsula to discover the locations. And for Parasite in particular, um, because 90% of the narrative takes place in the two houses, um, it was pretty different from my previous films. And the two houses were all sets that we couldn't visit before they were completed. Um, and because I've never worked like that before, I had to give it a lot of thought. 네, 부잣집을 정말 정교하게 공간을 분해해야 되거든요. 거기서 뭐 영화의 반이상이 And because for the rich house, it was very meticulous in how each space was segmented. Um, there are a lot of secrets in there and a lot of things happen and half of the story takes place in the rich house. So we basically create a virtual rendering of the rich house. Uh, we created a virtual model. I asked the visual effects company to make an exact model of what the art department was uh, trying to build. And I was also able to test out the camera positions and the camera camera lens. It was like playing a video game where I could uh, roam around the house uh, through my computer. So I still have the virtual model of the rich house in my computer. 그 버추얼 모델을 바탕으로 해서 한 스토리보드예요. Um, so the story I storyboarded based on that virtual models model of the rich house, and it was pretty much the same. I could just shoot uh, based on the storyboard, um, and the and the poor neighborhood was also a pretty complicated process as well. 그그 홍수 장면을 찍어야 되잖아요. 그거를 이제 수영장. Um, and because of the flood scene, we basically had to build the entire neighborhood in a water tank so that at the end of production we could just uh, pour in water to flood the entire set and uh, for that we had to work with a special effects team uh, and prepare very meticulously. So 
그런 상태에서 좀 강박적으로 특히 그 배우들한테는 그렇게 이제 <웃음> 화면을 꽉 조직을 해놓지만 배우들은 최대한 편하게 해주려고 정말 많은 애를 씁니다. 그리고 이제 배우들이 이렇게 즉흥 임프로바이즈 하는 것도 되게 저는 추천하고요. 근데 대부분은 복잡한 카메라 이동을 따라가느라 지금 뭐 임프로비제이션이고 뭐고 지금 그거 신경 쓸 여유가 없어요. 감독님 뭐 이런 호소를 할 때도 꽤 있죠. Um, particularly for my actors, I tried to give them a lot of freedom. Um, I would meticulously set the frame and the image, and um, I try hard to make them as comfortable as possible. I also encourage them to improvise, but mostly because they have to follow very complicated camera movements, they're always telling me that they have no time or leisure to improvise anything with the meticulous setup I put up. 그렇지만 송강호 같은 배우는 되게 영감이 풍부하고 많은 또 애드립을 하긴 하죠 또그 와중에도. 예. But actors like Song Kang-ho, he's always very inspirational, and he still manages to improvise a lot. Can you say, um, I just want to pick up on something you said earlier, where you, you, know, you said you were sort of a filmmaker who's interested in genre. Um, and I think that's a, that's a good way to put it, because I, I don't, you're sort of a genre filmmaker, but I, I, I think the interesting thing about your films is they're, that they're never just one genre. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you see as the the uses of genre as a filmmaker, and how you approach possibly combining them or breaking the rules of genre. 그좀 뭐라 해야지 그래야 될까 분열적인 거 정신 분열. 네. Uh, I have a split personality. <웃음> <웃음> 장르적인 흥분을 너무 느끼고 싶고. 저도 막 제가 만든 영화에서 장르적인 흥분이 막 관객들을 덮치기를 막 휩쓸어 버리는 걸 원하면서 동시에 그런 장르 규칙들에게 또 때로는 짜증을 스스로 내는 거예요. 그래서 이걸 왜 내가 이렇게 장르 규칙대로 해야 돼? 그런 게 어딨어라고 또막 동시에 그걸 막 흐트러트리죠. 그 짝대기를 쥐고 막 개미를 흐트리는 어린애처럼. 음. Um, so I always want to feel the excitement that genre brings and I want the genre elements of my films to overwhelm the audience and just sweep them away but at the same time I get very frustrated by the rules I'm like why do I have to keep all the all the rules and I try to break the conventions I'm basically like a little boy trying to uh, scatter the ants away with the with a branch Mother나 기생충 같은 경우는 상대적으로 장르에 대한. So for Mother and Parasite, I was relatively less aware or obsessed with genre. Um, I tried to reflect the daily life of Korea and the reality of Korean society. Um, but definitely for the host and Snowpiercer, I was very much aware of the genre elements. Actually, the host is a is is monster movie. Yeah, monster flick, not Godzilla, but uh, but. At the time, I really hate the, the, the convention of monster movie. If audience want to, if audience want to see the whole, the shape and body of the monster, audience must 
audience have to wait almost one or one and a half hour. I really hated that. So that's the reason I showed the whole body of a monster under the broad daylight just after the 13, no, 14 minute after beginning of the film. So 그런 거 하면서 이제 되게 쾌감을 막 어, 통쾌하다. 쨍한 햇살 아래 괴물을 머리부터 발끝까지 보여줬다. 인 건데 이제 그 다음을 어떻게 할 것이냐 뭐 이런 문제가 있는 건데. 예. So I felt so excited and relieved that I could show this monster under broad daylight so soon into the film. But then came the questions, question of what do I do next? 그래서 괴물은 이미 그렇게 백일화에 다 드러나 버렸고 그 다음에 이제 그그 가족들 그 못났지만 정많은 그 가족들과 또그 가족들을 못 살게 구는 이제 사회가 나오고 또 그걸 거슬러 올라가니까 또 미국에 관련된 또 풍자까지 쭉 이어진단 말이죠. 그러니까 장르의 틀을 파괴하는 순간 거기에 어떤 다른 현실적이거나 정치적인 어떤 그런 것들이 스며들어 오게 될 수밖에 없는 그런 것인 것 같아요. Um, so in the beginning, the monster is all revealed, and you end up discovering more about this family, um, who you know they're affection. They're not the perfect family, but they have a lot of affection for each other. And then you end up seeing the society that harasses them, and that leads to the satire on the U.S. So I think as I destroy genre conventions, I uh, leave room for um, elements of reality and political commentary to seep into my films. I'm just going to ask one more, and then we'll take some audience questions. I, this is just a, quest, uh, a question about um, your film Memories of Murder from 2003. Um, I think it's one of your great films up there with Parasite. Um, and it's a film that's based on a true story, um, a, a serial killer who was never caught until a few days ago. Three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. So... I was wondering if you know this. This that is so much a part of the film. The fact that they don't know who the killer is. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your response to this uh, this news. More David Fincher의 무슨 조디액이라든가 뭐또 영국에도 보면 뭐잭잭더 리퍼라고 해갖고 19세기 말에도 그런 영구 미제 사건 그죠? 그런 게 그게 그게 이제 한국 같은 경우는 이제 제가 그 살인의 척을 만들었던 그 스토리인데. 어, 범인이 그냥 밝혀져 버렸어요 DNA로. 다행히 뭐몇십 년간 교도소에 있었던 사람인데. 예. So you have, you know, the Zodiac Killer, uh, which Fincher made a movie on, and Jack the Ripper in the uh, 19th century UK, which was uh, an unsolved case. And in Korea, that it's the case that Memories of Murder is based on. But recently, the the culprit was discovered uh, through DNA data, and it turned out that it was someone who had already been in jail for decades. 본인이 이제 고백도 했어요. 이제 프로파일러들이 뭐 여러 명의 프로파일러들이 들어가서 이제 취조를 했고 고백도 해, 받아낸 상태인데. 예. And uh, the murderer actually confessed to his crimes. Several profilers interrogated him, which led to his confession. 저뭐 엄청 복잡한 감정이었죠. 그 사람 얼굴 되게 보고 싶었었거든요. 그 되게 공포스러우면서도 되게 보고 싶은 얼굴이었어요. 너무 절박한 마음으로 제가 시나리오쓸 때. And I felt very complicated um, throughout the years. I always wanted to see his face. I was terrified, but at the same time, I was desperate to see his face as I was writing the script. During screenwriting at the time, 
It's already 18 years ago, 2001-2002. During screenwriting process, I did a very big, deep research process. I did. I met many people and some people around the, the, the big team and also the detectives at that time and also journalists. But only one person I could not meet is murderer. Yeah. So, 그그 자를 그 사람을 만나면은 뭐 단시간 내 빨리 꼭 물어보고 싶은 질문들에 대해서 막 그걸 메모해서 수첩에 넣어서 가져다니기도 하고 막 그랬었었는데. 네. Um, I used to have a notepad where I wrote down questions that I could quickly ask him if I somehow run into him, and I would carry that notepad with me all the time. 그리고 그 사람이 에, 뭐, 뭐 계속 감옥에 있다는 건 몰랐었으니까 그건 최근에서 알게 된 거. 그래서 그 사람이 영화를 이제 살인의 초 완성 영화를 보러 올지도 모른다라는 생각에 되게 마음이 복잡했어요. 기분도 약간 무섭기도 했고. 에. And um, since I didn't really know, I didn't know that he was already in jail, I thought that maybe at once the movie comes out, he might actually come see it. And so it felt that made me feel very complicated and scared as well. You know, the, the, the very last shot of Memories Murder is that the, 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 the main guy, the detective, he's watching the camera uh, in, in, the, in the center of the camera. And and so I wanted them to lock eyes. Um, it's not very common to have the actor stare into the camera, but I thought that if the murderer is sitting in sitting somewhere in the audience, I wanted him to lock eyes with the detective who was so desperate to catch him, but ultimately failed. 근데 영화 제일 마지막에 그 어떤 소녀애가 범인을 마주친 것으로 추측되는 어떤 소녀애가 하는 단어가 있어요. 어뭐 그래서 이제 주인공이 물어보거든요. 어떻게 생겼더냐 그 사람이 그랬더니 그 소녀가 평범해요라고 이제 대답을 해요. 평범한 얼굴이었다라고. 물론 이제 범인의 얼굴은 화면에 나오지는 못하죠. 그래서 이제 그런 이제 영화의 마지막이 그렇게 처리되어 있는데. 예. And in some, the last part of that film, you see this girl who um, is supposedly ran into the murderer and uh, the detective, the protagonist, asks the girl what he looks like. And the girl says that he just looks normal, that he has a very normal face. And ultimately, on the screen, you never see the murderer's face. And 우리 뭐 한국인들 모두가 보고 저도 본 건데 에, 다행히 이걸 다행이라 그래야 되나 얼굴이 그렇게 평범하지는 않더라고요. 에, 정말 선하고 평범한 얼굴이었으면 더 상처가 됐을 것 같아요 마음에. 근데 다행히 아주 평범한 얼굴은 아니었어요. 살인자란 걸 알고 봐서 그랬을 수도 있겠지만. 에. 
Uh, so the film came out in 2003, and so 16 year years later, I was finally able to see the face of the murderer. It wasn't just me. All Koreans were able to see it. And I don't know if you can say that it was fortunate, but fortunately, he does not have a very normal face. I think if he just had a nice-looking, normal face, I would have felt more hurt. Um, but thankfully, he did not look that way. Perhaps because I knew he was the murderer. Okay, so um, we have a bit of time for audience questions, and I think we have a microphone as well. I see a lot of hands. Um, we'll start over there in the second row. Yep. So first of all, thank you so much for sharing. So you mentioned you studied sociology in college, and I'm an economics student who wants to make movie maybe in the future. And do you have any recommendation or suggestion for someone who study other major in college and want to be a director? 전공은 그냥 졸업 가능할 정도로만 하시면 되고 예, 영화 동아리에서 대부분의 시간을 보내시기를 추천합니다. 예. So I suggest you study just enough to graduate and spend most of your time in a film club. 본인 전공하고 그 영, 필름 메이킹하고 연결 짓지 마세요. You do, uh, don't connect your major to filmmaking. 그리고 영화를 보는 것, 그 다음에 좋아하는 영화를 반복해서 보는 것, 또는 좋아하는 어떤 씬을 저절로 외워버리는 것, 그건 되게 좋은 일인 것 같아요. 그리고 그게 이제 그러다 보면 저절로 뭔가를 만들게 되는 것 같아요. Um, so I think it's great to watch films, to repeatedly watch films that you like and almost memorize your favorite scenes. And I think that naturally leads to you just creating them. We'll try um, over there. Uh, yes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi, so I have a question about the different audience reactions depending on the region because um, I was in, in, in Korea over the summer and then I watched Parasite there and I watched it over here again at this festival and I found something very interesting here uh, because the reactions from these audiences were very different. So um, some scenes were very sad when I watched it in Korea, but then here was full of laughters. I was like, wait, is this supposed to be a comedy or something? Yeah. Um, so I thought maybe um, I was really curious what, why it actually happened like that and then how did you take that? Actually, it depends on the which screening you, you saw. Maybe in the, it's, even in the same country, it's all different. It's in film festival or some, some serious film festival or genre festival in the midnight screening and in the morning press screening and it's, it's all different. So I don't know what kind of screening you were there, but anyway, uh, 전반적으로 봤을 때뭐 미국이나 유럽 관객분들이 더 많이 웃으신 거는 저도 그렇게 좀 상대적으로 느꼈어요. 그러니까 더, 더 장르 영화를 즐기는 느낌 같은 거 상대적으로는. 네. But overall, I did feel that um, American and European audiences laughed more. They seemed to enjoy this film more as a genre film. 한국 관객분들한테는 너무나 자기 주변에서 일어나는 실제 일들 같고 자기 친구 중에 또 저런 사람이 있는 것 같고 또 반지하에 살아보신 분들도 있고 마음이 더 무거울 수가 있죠. 그래서 그런 차이 같은 건 충분히 있으리라고 느껴지고요. 네. But I think for Korean audiences, the film feels like things that happen around them on a daily basis. Um, 
people know friends who've gone through similar things, people who have actually lived in these semi-basement homes themselves. So I think they could feel more heavy-hearted after watching this film. 네, 그렇지만 크게 봤을 때 제가 이제 뭐 깐느부터 시작해서 시드니 무슨 독일 그 다음에 뭐 텔루라이드 토론토 그 다음에 여기 뉴욕 어뭐또 텍사스에서도 상영이 있었고 관객들과 같이 볼 기회가 이제 뜸은 뜸은 계속 있었는데 크게 봐서는 뭐 관객의 반응이 이제 그 흐름은 거의 똑같았던 것 같아요 전체적인 그래서 뭐 이게 결국 가난한 자와 부자 얘기이기 때문에 예, 나라와 상관없이 예, 지금 우리가 전 세계가 다 거대한 한 나라에 살고 있잖아요. 자본주의라는 나라라고 생각해요. 그래서 중국조차도 자본주의를 살고 있는 그런 시대잖아요. 네. Um, I had the I screened this film in Cannes, Sydney, Germany, Telluride, Toronto, New York, and even Texas. And I had the opportunity to watch the film again uh, with the audience in some of the screenings. And overall, I noticed that generally the responses were very similar. This film is ultimately about the rich and poor. So no matter which country it is, I think every country, we're all living in this one giant nation of capitalism. We're living in a time where even China is, uh, you know, follows capitalism. Um, let's go to the back of the theater. Sure. Yep. Which over here? Whichever. Either one. <laughs> um, hi. Uh, first of all, thank you for all your work. It's amazing, and uh, uh, I would like for you to talk a little bit about your endings. Are usually very powerful, especially uh, the last shot of your movies. I think about the mother less mother's less shot a lot and uh you seem to put a lot of care on the last shot of the movie i'd like to you for you to talk a little bit about that 마더는 뭐 여기 안 보신 분들도 계실까 봐 이제 말씀드리면 이제 그 엄마가 거의 반쯤 미쳐서 고속 달리는 고속버스에서 이제 다른 아줌마들과 같이 춤을 추면서 끝나는 엔딩인데 예. So for those of you who haven't seen Mother, Mother ends with uh, the protagonist who's almost half crazy at that point um, in, a, in a running bus dancing with other ladies in the bus. 네, 사실 그 이미지는 처음 시나리오 훨씬 이전부터 두 페이지짜리 시납시스를 썼을 때부터 사실 그 이미지가 있었던 거고요. 오히려 그, 그 앞에 두 시간 정도의 영화를 사실 그 장면을 향해 가는 과정처럼 만들었다고 해야 될까요? 제가 제가 반드시 찍어야만 하는 장면이었었고요. 네. Um, but that image existed um, long before the script. Um, it was already there from the uh, from the time I wrote a two-page treatment of that story. And basically, the two hours uh, of the film, I I created it so that it it leads to that final moment in the film. 그 장면 보면 이제 달리는 관광버스 안에서 춤을 추는 이제 한국의 이제 어머니들이 나오는 것인데 되게 한국적인 상황이죠. 네. 달리는 버스에서 춤을 추는 게 이제 한국과 어, 루마니아? 네, 깐네에서 루마니아 기자님이 저한테 오더니 저희도 저렇게 합니다라는 뭐 얘기를 했었는데 그러니까 되게 한국적인 어떤 이미지인데 그 대학교 그러니까 어렸을 때 그걸 보면서 그 어머니에 관한 영화를 만든다면 꼭 저것이 라스트 신이었으면 좋겠다는 이상한 강박관념이 있었어요. 앞에 구체적인 스토리와 상관없이. 예. And that scene where you see a bunch of old uh, 
ladies, probably mothers, dancing in a running tourist bus. It's a very unique thing that you see in Korea and maybe even in Romania. Some Romanian reporter told me that happens there in Cannes. Um, and it's a very Korean image. I remember seeing it when I was little and I always thought to myself that if I create a film about mothers, I would always want to include that scene. 기술적으로도 좀 복잡한 지점은 있었어요. 실제 햇빛으로 그러니까 태양 광선이 수평으로 버스를 관통해야 되기 때문에 아침에 30분, 해질 때 30분 딱두 번밖에 찬스가 없는 거였고 그 태양광이 정확하게 관통할 수 있게끔 버스가 달리는 각도랑 그 자동차 길을 미리 다 맞춰놓고서 이제 미리 날짜를 정해놓고 찍은 거였는데. 예. And that scene was very uh, difficult technically because we had to have actual sunlight penetrate the bus horizontally and we only had around 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes during sunset to shoot it. Um, we had to calculate the exact direction of the sun with the speed of the bus and um, we had to calculate all the angles to pull it off. And you know, I shot it, and that's why it's in the film. But on the 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 day we shot it, um, I felt very strange. It was as if I I was yanking out a decade-old tumor from my heart. Thank you for all your work. Uh, beautiful. Um, can you talk about financing and where do you get your money to do your films, whether it's the state or an individual or American backing? And uh, how much does that influence your work? Uh, do they, uh, does it affect the story at all? And especially in Parasite, did the state come down and give you notes at all? Did they have any kind of uh, say in, in the movie? <laughs> 한국에서 이제 영화 감독이 되었는데 처음 그 한국은 이제 그 인더스트리 상황이 꽤 좋은 편이에요. 매년 한 100편 이상의 장편 영화들이 꾸준히 만들어지고 또 관객들이 그 그러니까 전체 시장의 한 반반씩을 차지하고 있을까? 허리우드 영화가 한 절반 정도, 한국 그 도메스틱 영화가 한또 절반 정도. 시장 상황이 되게 좋아요. 그래서 어 지속적으로 그 한국 영화에 그 한국어 영화에 투자하는 큰 대형 회사들이 그래도 꾸준히 존재하고 있어요. 예. 저도 이제 그런 일반적인 회사 스튜디오로부터 한국 자체의 어떤 그러니까 민간 스튜디오로부터 기업으로부터 투자를 받아서 영화를 찍어왔고요. 국가의 지원이라는 거는 대부분 이제 인디펜던트 영화나 다큐멘터리 쪽으로 향해 있죠. uh, produce more than a hundred feature films, and um, the market is basically half dominated by Hollywood films and half by domestic films. So there are always these uh, large studio companies that consistently invest in Korean and Korean language films. And so generally, I get investment from private studios, and most of the government funding goes to independent films and documentaries. Financing 관련해서 제가 힘든 상황 겪었던 거는 이제 괴물태예요. 그... 고 바로 전 작품이었던 살인의 추억이 박스오피스에서 되게 성공적이었음에도 불구하고 괴물이 나와서 막 뛰어다니는 영화를 한다고 하니까 다들 아 제정신이 아니구나 뭐 한국에서 그런 걸 어떻게 하려고 하느냐 
그뭐 예산이 엄청 많이 들어가지 않겠느냐. 그래서 그때 좀 힘든 상황을 겪은 적이 있고요. So I struggled with financing actually for the host, um, despite the fact that Memories of Murder was quite successful box office-wise in Korea. Um, when I told them that I want to create a film with the monster running around, um, they were like, you are not in your right mind. How are we going to create this in Korea? Um, they were very concerned that it would require a high budget. Uh,그,X,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh,uh
really never had struggles with financing or studio, the studio interfering with my uh, creative decisions. I was very free um, as I shot my films in Korea. Um, for Parasite, the studio gave me a lot of support in terms of the production period and the budget, and they didn't interfere at all during the post-production process. Um, just only once during uh, the process of distributing uh, Snowpiercer in North America, I did go through a very interesting um, incident, but it's all in the past. <laughs> I forgot it all. I think we can guess, but yes. Okay, uh, well, let's go to you in the front. Yes. Hi, uh, thank you for being here, and congratulations of winning the Palme d'Or I can. Uh, I wanted to ask you, in one of the Q&As of the screening, you mentioned that you do not like rehearsals. And I was wondering, uh, how is your relationship uh, with, with actors? Uh, it's something that you didn't discuss. Uh, and it's often taught here in America that rehearsal is a way to develop the character. Uh, so I was wondering, how do you craft uh, these essential characters without rehearsals? I think it's different for every actor and director. Everyone has their own method and taste. But for me, if you know, I would rather just shoot it if I had to rehearse. 그 모르겠어요. 그어그 해당 순간에 그러니까 사실 배우 감독도 그렇고 배우도 그렇고 연기란 것을 스스로건 또는 감독이 컨트롤한다라는 환상을 갖고 있지만 환상이라고 하면 그렇네요. 컨트롤하려고 하지만 사실은 그냥 그 순간에 뿜어져 나오는 어떤 순간적인 어떤 그 순간의 진실 같은 거라 그래야 될까 이게 어떻게 표현해야 될까? 네, 그매 테이크가 그냥 고때 고때 기록된 다큐멘터리라고 느낄 때가 있거든요. 그 테이크라는 것이 절대 같은 연기를 두번할 수는 없어요. 배우가 아무리 똑같이 할 모든 것은 다 미묘하게 다른 것인데 어 그럴 바에 어떤 조직적으로 훈련된 어떤 동작과 대사보다는 오히려 뭔가 덜 연습되었을 때 나온 것 생생한 날것 같은 방금 물속에서 끄집어낸 물고기처럼 뭔가 되게 혼란스럽게 퍼덕거리고 있을 때 그런 모습을 좀 화면에 남겨놓고 싶은 마음이 있는 건데. 예. So I think you know directors and actors always try to control the performances, uh, whether it's through direction or the actors trying to uh, control their performances themselves. But I think every take um, carries the momentary truth that is, is exuded only in that moment. Every take is its own documentary, its its own record of what happens at that particular moment. Um, I don't think you can ever see the same performance twice, no matter how hard actors try they're all subtly different and so rather than rehearse and rather than have the actors um, portray this trained um, give a trained performance and practiced um, you know practice movements I would rather have them practice less and show the show what is raw at that moment what is alive at that moment like a fish that's just been pulled out of the water I would rather have them flap around in chaos and leave that as a record on screen 그런 면에서 저랑 그 송강호라는 배우 네 번이나 같이 작업했던 그 되게 잘 맞아요. 그러니까 
막 해보거든요. 계속 그리고 그, 그 배우도 매 테이크마다 계속 뭔가를 다르게 해요. 즉각적으로. 그리고 저도 테이크마다 이건 이렇고 저건 저러니까 여차저차해서 이렇게 바꾸라는 식으로 잔소리하지 않거든요. 그냥 계속 다시 해보죠. 다시 해보죠라고 하면서 뭔가 서로가 동시에 스파크가 탁 터질 때가 있고 그 서로가 만족하는 테이크는 되게 놀랍도록 일치 일치해요. So I've worked with the actor Song Kang-ho four times and in that sense we're very good collaborators because he just tries. He, um, every take for him, he shows a different performance and after the take I never tell him you should do this because of this and because of that. Um, I just constantly tell him let's go again, let's go again and some, some of those moments uh, we will just you know, spark together and surprisingly uh, we're always satisfied with the same takes. I think we have time for one last question. So let's make it a good one. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> you, yes. Yeah. You want to use? Hi. Thank you for the great film. Uh, I have a question. Have you experienced any censorship during the process of making the film? And also, do you think the murder has watched your film in jail? The memories of murder in that one? <laughs> thank you. 아그 어, 살인자 모르겠어요. 이게 그 그분이 94년부터 계속 20몇 년간 이제 감옥에 계셨기 때문에 에, 근데 뭐 감방 동료의 증언에 의하면 뭐 TV에서 해줄 때세번 봤다는 증언. 근데 아직 그 모든 것이 정확하게 팩트 체킹이 안된 것이고 뭐 무성한 루머일 수도 있고 저도 궁금하긴 하네요. 볼때 어떤 기분이었을지. 예. So the murderer was in jail since 1994, so he's been there for around two decades. And um, according to someone who was in his prison cell, he watched it three times when it was broadcast on TV. But this hasn't been confirmed. Um, it might just be a random rumor. I am very curious how he felt if he watched the film. 그리고 저는 참 행운의 운이 좋은 세대예요. 1996년, 7년경? 그때 이제 새 정부 들어섰을 때쯤에 영화의 어떤 검열이라는 것이 없어졌어요. 한국도 이제 등급 심의제로 등급만 매기는 뭐 알레이트다, 뭐 피지설트인데 그걸로 바뀌었죠. 그래서 검열을 겪어본 적은 한 번도 없고요. 예. Um, and I'm a part of a very lucky generation with the new gov administration in 96-97. Um, you know, they, they stopped censoring uh, films. Instead, they implemented a ratings system, you know, R-rated or PG-13. So I've never experienced censorship. Okay. I'm afraid we have to wrap it up, but I want to thank you all for coming. And Director Bong, thank 감사합니다. you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases. The publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education curriculum and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C 
www.thepodcast.org.